Lung King Express. Thank you. Okay, that one's making the pod. Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you much for... Well... Hit it. Thank you very, thank you very much for listening to Tri Love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org, where you can find merch and tickets and all the other cool stuff you can use to support the Trilon. My name is Jason Daphnis. When I put on a raincoat, I put on sunglasses too, and you can find me at Nintendoofus. Good save, Jason. I'm Cody Narvison, and I haven't been able to cry as much as I would have expected to in quarantine, and that's because I've been jogging a lot this past year, and in the process, ridding my body of all its excess water. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. What a show off. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry, where my password is love you for 10,000 years. Please don't steal my account, or if you do, at least tweet better than I do. Uh, and I'm Aaron, and I'm not specifically a quote from this movie. Instead, I am the shot of the new flight stewardess's uh, cool motorcycle boyfriend that appears most of the way through the movie. So just think of it. He's that. about as slightly greasy as you are. Yeah, Is that what you're telling that, me? That's exactly right, Harry. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB, please. Style goals. And because good things come in fives, we are, won't, uh, excuse me, pleased once again to welcome special guest Jenny Ackerson to the podcast. Yay. <laughs> Thank you for having me back. I am no different than a can of pineapple. <laughs> and where and can people find you at? is coming up soon. <laughs> so today we're going to be continuing our series on Wong Kar Wai's, uh, well, a selection of his filmography uh, with Chungking Express. This is the one that I actually knew by name prior to starting this series. 1994 film that Aaron is going to give us a little bit of a summary about. Yes, Chungking Express, 1994, Wong Kar Wai. Thank you, Jason. Uh, this film tells two very semi-interconnected stories, one after the other. Uh, the first is concerned with He Ki Woo, uh, played by Takashi Kaneshiro, um, also known as Cop 223. Uh, he's a police officer who was recently dumped by his girlfriend and is trying desperately to get her back. Uh, he meets a woman uh, in a blonde wig at a bar who turns out to be a drug smuggler on the run after her criminal activities go south. Uh, the second story is about another police officer, Cop 663, played by Tony Lung Chu Wei, who slowly gets over his heartache for a uh, woman, a flight, flight stewardess, flight attendant, who broke up with him. Um, and he slowly gets over this heartache due to his interactions with kind of a, a quirky and fun um, woman uh, who works at a, a local restaurant played by uh, Fei Wong. That is my summary. Thank you for your summary, Aaron Grossman. Uh, yeah. so, so top of my head thoughts. Uh, this one came together a little bit less cleanly, I guess, for me than um, than our previous film uh, in the series. But I I quite enjoyed it. We uh, I, I just like one, one thing I have to say is like, finally, low FPS action shots are back in a big way in this movie from as tears go by. That was uh, or no, I'm sorry. Was that our first? 
as yeah, Tears Go By right. was their very first. Yeah, that was the first. Okay. Uh, and then it sort of took a, um, a, a small sabbatical in, uh, in Days of Being Wild and have now returned for very 90s feeling uh, film. I, I think I'm getting a better, rounder feeling of how Wong Kar Wai feels about love and how he wants to present it on the screen. I don't know that the pieces came together like I said, as cleanly or as, uh, I guess, scrupulously as um, Days of Being Wild did for me. But I still quite enjoy this movie. I see why it's received all the praise that it has. Uh, the fact that it's split into, I don't know if I would have preferred to know that the movie was split into two different stories before watching it, uh, just because I may maybe help, may have helped me get a little bit more of a, a reign around it uh, and sort of what it was doing. But maybe that's sort of the point that it took me by surprise. Um, I look forward to talking about this movie, but I want uh, Cody to tell me what he thought of it first. Ah, well, thank you for that, Jason. Uh, this was my second time experiencing Chunking Express. My first time was back in August, and both times I watched the version on the Criterion channel. Uh, I didn't watch the remastered version this time. I wasn't sure if that'd be worth pointing out. Um, but uh, yeah, the version on the Criterion uh, channel, which my understanding is that's the OG version. That's what I returned to this time. Uh, I love this movie, and Raining and my top most thoughts uh, has proven to be kind of difficult as I've been thinking about it, but I'll try to, to drop some cohesive lines here. Uh, first, I've seen this get cited online and just in general as a top tier quote-unquote vibe movie uh what i landed on while watching is that this world is uh, as we've talked about uh, all of one car uh wise movies up to now they're unsurprisingly beautifully photographed um and it, all of the the texture which is a word i love to use is is on display and the world building we get uh from characters and their narrations are largely just about their own personal ideologies and don't necessarily directly speak to the world that they're in um, so those images are instead left to speak for themselves in a way that when you come to like a new shop or a new apartment or you return to a shop that you've already been to, but it's a year later, it feels more vibrant and it feels like um, you discovered that eatery or you discovered that bar yourself and it feels like you've inhabited this city for longer than you have. And that's this movie's effect on me overall, I think, is that I feel like I've lived my entire life with Chunking Express as part of my general consciousness, even though that's not really the case. Uh, the the texture, uh, shout out to um, all instances of food in this movie, the texture kind of carried over to those. So anytime uh, someone was like, I ate four chef salads, or hey, I'm going to eat 30 things of pineapple, um, my mouth would just start watering. And this time around, I did actually like pause the movie, go into my cupboard, grab some pineapple and start eating because my sensory reaction was so strong uh, this time around. So that was a fun moment for me. Um, How was it? Uh, it, it was good. It was, uh, I actually, I kept it in the fridge and I pulled it out. So it was really nice and satisfying. Yeah. Canned, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. Uh, but in any case, sh shout out to the pineapple in this movie. The pineapple was very good. Um, and in my apartment, uh, where was I, uh, the music, it seems this will be an evergreen comment about Wonka Y movies. Uh, but the musical choices here, uh, felt pretty elite to me, uh, in particular, this movie has one of my favorite needle drops of all time, which is Faye Wong's cover of Dreams. I love the OG uh, version of that song by the Cranberries, um, and I love this cover. And having the cover blindside me the first time I watched this movie back in August is still one of my fondest uh, quarantine memories, and maybe one of my favorite memories, period. Uh, but one last thing that I won't go into too much detail about right now with the sort of metatextual readings that I can't help but bring into this conversation. I, I came away this time with a a simultaneous sort of strengthening of cozy, th thankful to be in my home energy and yearning to be out in a city energy in a, a two sides of the same coin kind of way. Um, revisiting this movie's ecosystem was uh, 
folks, it was a it was a magnificent journey um, that defied any sense of time and space uh, that I had within me. But it also made me very sad. But I'm, uh, of course, happy to have had that experience, and I'm happy and excited to uh, talk through that more with y'all here today. Order of operations here, Harry. Yeah. Hey, uh, you said a lot of really good things there, Cody. I'm excited to dig into. This is also my second watch. Um, I watched it the first time a, a couple years ago now um, on Jenny's recommendation. So shout out to Jenny. Um, thanks for being on the pod. Um, I think it's it's probably one of my favorite movies. Um, I have like 200 favorite movies. So, you know, but um, I really, really love this movie. Um, I think a big takeaway I had this time is how well it holds up on rewatch. I think that it can be overwhelming to watch, especially because it's two stories the first time that you watch it. So I'm not necessarily surprised that it didn't feel particularly cohesive to you, Jason, but I think that the cohesion and the sophistication and um, continuation of Wong Kar Wai's themes and his sort of ideology of, of romance and love really um, works for this movie and really comes together, uh, especially on rewatch. So I, I'm interested in unpacking that and how these stories integrated for me a lot better than they did last time and how the city itself um, became very important as well as the Midnight Express, which is sort of the Chungking Express um, alluded to in the title. Um, and uh, I agree with Cody. I think that um, Fei Wong rearranging um, Cop 663's apartment, well, her cover of Dreams Place is one of my favorite single movie scenes of all time. So I'm super glad you shouted that out. Um, and I think that this this movie really surprised me um, because I I had it in my mind as sort of a culmination or a um, like a, a standard bearer for Wong Kar Wai's approach to romance, uh, but it, it actually came off a lot more um, interested in in deconstructing that than I thought it was than I read it the first time, and it ended up being a more practical and more individualistic or um, existentially or individually driven movie than I remember it being even, uh, which I was really impressed and excited by. Um, and so, uh, it's just really cool. This movie, like I, I love that it, it can feel so light and so fun. It's such a joy to watch. It, it felt like it was like an hour to me rather than an hour and 46 minutes or whatever it is. Um, but it's still as deep and as enriching and, um, emotional as it is at the same time i feel like it's it's rare to get a movie that's so easy and fun to watch and has such um legs for analysis and feeling to it so i really appreciate it for that reason uh aaron put the a in our j cha here yeah i uh i like this movie um quite a bit i think that i am very slightly down on it compared to the last film of uh wong car wise that we watched uh, that was days of being wild was the last one that we recorded on um my criticism of that film was that it was kind of humorless i guess not a criticism but i guess one one thing that i was slightly down on it was that it was kind of humorless um kind of pointedly so um i guess a criticism of this film is that i think it is quite humorous, but I don't necessarily love the humorous aspects of it. Um, especially in the, the second story here, I, I very much prefer the first story as opposed to the second, um, which I think is probably a not very popular opinion. Uh, the, you know, the, the first story, the, the scene of cop two, two, three and the, the blonde haired woman at the bar, for example, is very, very good. Um, I think that they're, there's a certain way that Wong Kar Wai is uh, shooting a lot of the stuff here that feels so separate uh, from what he's done before. Everything in this film 
especially at the beginning, feels like so claustrophobic. Um, and he's using a lot of like yeah, that's fine. similar filmmaking techniques. And he's like, this film very much feels like him attempting to refine and perfect a lot of the themes and techniques that he was working with in his prior films. But I do think that in a lot of ways, this is kind of a step up. Um, but I think it may, it, I think it's mostly just a, a personal preference. Um, there's also one or two kind of things that I starting to bug me a little bit. I think that um, Wong Kar Wai really likes characters voicing themes out loud via spoken narration um, and having this kind of ironic twists on kind of didactic sayings. Um, and I think that works generally when he does it, but it's kind of the third film in a row. And so I would like to see a little bit less of that kind of stuff. Um, but I think all of this is very nitpicking. Um, kind of the other nitpick is that this movie is like very 1990s and I, I'm not a giant 1990s guy. Um, but I think most of that kind of works cohesively. I think this film feels like, uh, this kind of clash of increased commercialization and globalization. Like I like a lot of what it's going for. I think that any, any major criticisms I have are mostly due to just my own preferences. Um, so I did like this movie. I think I preferred days of being wild, but, um, yeah, I'm kind of excited to talk about this one and also see where, uh, he went from here in his career. Camp Dabwi. Um, Jenny. You want to bring us up uh, up to speed? Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, so I Chungking Express is the first Wong Kar Wai movie I had seen a couple of years ago, and I think it was one of the first movies I watched when the Criterion Channel launched. And so this is kind of just my baseline understanding. Um, every every other movie of his I've watched, I'm always comparing it to this one, and I think I watched it twice the first time I saw it. Um, I watched it one and a half times yesterday. Uh, so I'm just like really soaking it in. Like in contrast to Aaron, all these vibes are my vibes. They're not his vibes, but it's okay because they're mine, you know? So uh what yeah, I kind of belong really, to somebody. <laughs> they they belong to me and probably like everybody on Tumblr. I don't know. <laughs> uh what what I find interesting here is um the 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 parallel storylines in, in this one universe, um, this one like time and place in the nineties, uh like it, it just works for me in a way that um, I guess I used it to explain my last appearance on the pod for as tears go by, like, well, maybe if he freed himself a little bit from keeping this from one story and separated it out into two that exist in the same time and place, then they can call and respond to each other a little bit better. And I, and I was definitely thinking of this movie when I thought it should be maybe, you know, two stories uh, completely separate, but really what, what I love about this is the different ways that it shows people um, dealing with a, a stamp in time and how, how people associate, um, I guess, deadlines or, you know, you can set aside cop two, two, three things that he can like cope in one month, you know, and has a full ritual on it. And it's, it's a lot about people having routines and rituals to, to, I guess, deal with their emotions, trying to find their place in the world, but they're all, pretty self-centered and it's um, just so beautiful. And I guess I, I love this movie so much. So that that's my opening remarks. Yeah. That's kind of where I wanted to start the conversation with the group anyway, was like, because it's, because it's two stories uh, you, I think you adequately described them as like call and response. They don't immediately feel connected or related until you've seen the whole of the movie where you start to realize like what, is being said in the first movie about, you know, the nature of love relationships, time, 
is sort of reflected in a lot of ways, but, you know, contradicted in a lot of others in the second movie. How well do we think as a group that like that, that message that there is any consistent message between the two, or is it supposed to be more of like posit and refutation of, of the concepts like the, you know, intangibility and uh, sort of frivolity of, of love and romantic relationships. Is that, is that a thing? Cody, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, that is a good place to start. Um, and I, I was thinking about this too, cause I, like the first time I watched Chunking Express, I wasn't necessarily thinking or like banking on these two, uh, vignettes is not the right word to use, but my mind is, is mush, um, that they were like tied together in any way other than they're approximately sharing the same kind of space. You know, they, we brushed shoulders and were, you know, 0.3 centimeters apart or whatever. Um, one thing that stuck with me uh, this time around was that in, in the first half of the movie, I, I believe it was the scene um, Aaron pointed out where it was uh, the woman in the blonde wing, uh, wig and uh, Hichi Wu in the bar. And they, they're sort of clumsily drunkenly discussing the nature of like knowing somebody else. And up to this point, we had seen Bridget Lynn's character um, kind of vocalize things to like hordes of people, you know, her, her associates in the underworld. We see her uh, acting out uh, a lot of things. We see a lot, we get to know her through her like physical performance and her physically progressing through this world. And we see uh, Hichi Wu, we hear his, his uh, inner dialogue or monologue rather. Um, and we get, get an idea for what his interiority is. We hear him. And, and I guess to, kind of what Aaron was saying. We, we hear his, his narration a lot. He, he says a lot of things. Um, he's picking apart what, you know, what his thoughts are, are on everything. Um, we, we learn about the inner simp, which is great. Um, and there comes a point in their conversation where it's almost like the movie is positing to the audience. Like, does it matter how much we, we know someone and we seeing, we we're asking this after seeing these two interact, well, interact with other people and then interacting together in very different ways. And then that to me, I, it's it is sort of a a lob it up in the first half and then the second half kind of slams it down where it's we're we're now going further to say you know we're we're more intimately inhabiting the the other you know the other's space you know policeman 663's uh, apartment is getting uh usurped by by Faye. it's this different kind of of intimate knowledge and I don't know if it's necessarily like a refutation of that. I, I think it's just like a, a further exploration of that idea of like, what does it mean to know somebody in some ways? Does that even matter? So I, I guess what I'm ultimately what I'm saying is that I don't know if there's necessarily a concrete link between the two, but they do feel kind of cosmically tied together through the exploration of, of that idea of just like two people getting to know one another uh, in very different ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that, that Wong Kar Wai is very interested in how personal relationships change with technology, um, ch change with like geography as well and like different forms of transportation. I think that the the fact that trains and, and planes and whatnot are so, don't say automobiles. Uh, in fact, I think the fact that those forms of transportation are like so- Automobiles. In his films is like definitely, definitely an intentional thing. Um, I think that this- this movie reminds me a lot uh, of Amelie in a, in a weird way, not even in a weird way. I think the comparison's pretty, pretty obvious, right? Like I think that Faye in a lot of ways, and I don't really mean this as like an insult, but she is kind of like a very adorable character. Yeah. Um, she's it's done. Well, you is know, she, is she an MPDG? Does that count? 
She's often considered one of the prototypical. Yeah. Okay. Just making sure. Yeah. I don't have a great frame of reference for that, but she fits the bill in terms of my understanding. Anyway, go ahead. I, I would I would put this alongside Amelie of an example of like those characters done well and not just acting as some sort of kind of wish fulfillment for male characters. Um, I think that that Amelie does a very interesting thing where, where that that movie is is largely about a woman learning to uh, or developing this kind of int- intimate relationship with this man, despite the fact that they haven't met and learning about this person, like really knowing this person um, just based on. Um, learning who he is and what his day-to-day routine looks like. And then like, there's a scene at the very end of the film where they finally do meet. Right. And it's like, it's, it's like you instantly dropped into a relationship that's been going for like a year. Um, this film is kind of similar. I mean, obviously the, the kind of face-to-face interactions between these people are more common. Um, but Wong Kar Wai is very interested with how relationships develop, not just uh, during face-to-face interactions, but how they develop, in between those uh, re- interactions and, and how people kind of grow and develop with physical distance and with time. Um, I think that when the movie is doing that, that's when it's at its most interesting. And I also think that that's kind of the glue that like brings together uh, the, the first half of this movie and the second half of this movie. Yeah. I, uh, I really like something that both Cody and Aaron said um I don't want to, I, I think that I really understood the intersection between these two stories really well. The second time I watched this much more so than the first, to me, they're almost inverse stories um, in the sense that um, Takashi Kaneshiro's character, um, cop uh, 223, um, is is obsessed with trying to, to keep um, an idea of himself or an idea of his feelings alive. Um, I think that sets us up to understand the inverse in Fei Wong's character, who is attempting to um, change who she is or change how she feels. Um, and eventually she, um, well, she has a plan for that, that it becomes sort of usurped by this other plan. Um, meanwhile, Cop 663 is sort of similar to Cop 223 in the sense that um, he's trying to keep an idea, a relationship alive. Um, I really respond to and appreciate the way that this movie approaches why these people are so obsessed with, with keeping memories or keeping ideas alive. Um, I think that that is really well reflected in the claustrophobia and sort of like madness of the city that, that unfurls around them. Um, especially the idea that, that Chungking Express, that Midnight Express operates as this sort of anchor, um, like town square center for them. I think that these are people who are lost, um, who are sort of like swept up in the sort of like unknowability or like psychic uh, um, madness of like a postmodern technologically developed world. I think that that Chungking uh, is meant to like symbolize that to us, that this like wild Hong Kong city is supposed to um, represent how these people are sort of like no longer able to sort of like find pathways. And so the ones that they do when life like suddenly makes sense to them uh, in the form of love, which sort of like, uh, I think a lot about this, how this movie, it feels like having a crush where like when you have a crush on somebody, the whole world sort of like makes sense again, right? Like things fall into place. Um, I'll make another sort of like, 90s slash early 2000s reference this movie reminds me a lot of punk punch drunk love in the sense that like um adam sandler's character in that movie is is a character who is like totally um alienated by the world around him until he starts to fall in love and then everything that never made sense to him before starts to that's how these characters feel to me except that all of these characters have been in love before and are desperate to 
receive that again so that they can make sense of themselves and the worlds around them. Um, I think that, that Fei Wong becomes a very interesting character because she is sort of like symbolically the opposite of Cop 223 in that Cop 223 is obsessed with keeping an idea alive and she is obsessed with replacing herself with a different idea, um, which is where that that whole apartment thing comes from. Um, although that is, is very interesting because she's also trying to like erase trauma for Cop 663 and make a space for herself in his life, which is ultimately where the sort of theme of this movie, in my opinion, goes. Um, but I'm, I'm very interested in something Jenny said about um, deadlines and expiration dates and how those play into this. So you don't, you don't have to respond to this right away, Jenny, but I'm really interested in, in how these stories play with that idea and how like these characters feel like they might be under a deadline. Um, the deadlines are like really expressly made manifest in the first story. Um, but I think that you can feel it throughout and I'm super interested in how that comes into play, especially with like their relationship to the city and their relationship to midnight express and their relationship to how they think about each other and their own sort of um, self-determination and self-centeredness, um, which are all really interesting, especially in, in context. Thank you, Harry, for setting me up. Um, there's a lot to respond to there, but I will, I will talk about, I guess, the, the theme of deadlines and time and memory as the kind of the interconnective tissue between the two storylines where, I mean, we see, I'm not sure if Bridget Lynn's character has a name besides woman in the blonde wig, really, um, but her and Faye are both really ambitious women. They they want to seek out change and keep moving forward, right? Whereas Faye is a little bit um, weary of how to go about that. You know, she's she's seeking out change but not making the big leap until she actually does end up leaving. Whereas both of our lovelorn cops are very static. They're living in the past. They're trying to just like console themselves inside of like this time capsule and like process their emotions with, yes, a lot of, like, heavy internal monologue going on there. But I guess, like, yeah, it, I, I see the time as, like, maybe, like, a sentencing to these people. And it's so um, wrapped up in their ability to uh, create, like, a, a self-identity with the, the, the other person that they're thinking about, their, their other half, which is also maybe just the other half of like who they think they are, but it is attached to another person in this respect. So I guess like that's kind of the way that I feel like these two stories are um, responding to each other in some respect. But uh, I, I'm just like fully um, really into the, the locations that are taking place too, because our, our guy cop two, two, three uses the midnight express, like his cheers. And he's just always waiting by the phone for his <laughs> answering service <laughs> and uh, just calling up a bunch of people to like circumvent needing to actually talk to his ex-girlfriend. Um, but it, it, it just kind of feels like his home. So he thinks that if he can keep returning to this place, physically, he can like return to some kind of like mental state, emotional state that predated him going there. And it is pretty similar with our other cop, 663. He he keeps going there, ordering the same thing, never asking his girlfriend what she likes, I guess, and, and just hoping that things can stay the same by virtue of this routine, this like physical location, and then going home to, you know, whatever girlfriend. And then once that's disrupted, both of these these cops are just trying to maintain their routine in a physical sense to get like to recover emotionally. I guess that's kind of how I'm waiting on that. What do you think, Harry? Uh, just to piggyback off of that, I would say that um, your 
you're noticing the motif of routine and tradition is is really astute because like even the fact that both these characters are cops really plays into that right like like a cop is such a symbolic profession and it's such a traditional conservative profession like these are people who want to be like guardians and uh maybe protectors even if that's an absurd and ridiculous um idea of, of what they actually are and who they actually are. Like, like Takashi Kaneshiro is like maybe the, the last person you would ever want to be a cop, right? It's like absurd that this 24 year old who is like obsessed with himself and with love would be a cop. And he doesn't, his idea of being a cop seems to be striding around the like endless midnight of Hong Kong and like maybe making arrests when he feels like it and then ducking his superiors. Um, but but that goes to show that like these are these are people who need routines and they need um symbolic roles for themselves because they can't they can't make manifest uh identities in any other way right like they're they're clinging to ritual and they're clinging right. to um s- symbolism because they're lost without it and love comes to symbolize that too is is that love is like this overarching um ability to find yourself through somebody else because that is the self-definition that you need to to understand and relate to the world and that's why i said it's so funny that this is it's such a romantic movie but it's sort of ironic because all of these romantic entanglements are so and i don't even mean this pejoratively but they're so self-centered right they're all about who these people want to be and the end of this movie is actually just about making space for one another and like actually acknowledging that that there's something else that somebody wants from you and that you have to sort of like, like make room for one another and stop sleepwalking and actually notice uh, the other person in this relationship, which is really interesting to me, I think. And the fact that it it feels like a compromise in in some interesting ways um, is also interesting. Is cop six, six, three talking to his inanimate objects around his house. Is that a manifestation of one of those rituals you're talking about? I think so, right? Like, definitely. And and especially the fact that, like, it's also sort of a, a cynical uh, analysis of relationships themselves in this. It's like that those inanimate objects are doing the same thing for him that a relationship might have, right? Is the fact that, like, literally they're just giving him something to work off of, something to, like, understand himself through. Yeah, I guess I read that not, like, not in argumentation to that point, but I guess in synthesis with it, the idea that, like, I think those rituals and stuff, the way that they're not necessarily inverted uh, between, I guess I'm focusing solely on the second story between 663 and Faye, but the way that there's not inverted, but just twisted slightly, they're just slightly askew. Like he doesn't realize that his big white polar bear has been replaced with a Garfield, which he calls yellow, by the way, I take umbrage at that. Uh, But the, and you know how he's talking to his dish rag and how it's so nice now and stuff like is the implication that he does not recognize that. And therefore he like would not recognize himself without uh, somebody or something to be dependent on without something to like absorb his, a, a little bit of his self, I guess. Is that, is, is that, does that make any sense? I kind of read it. Like he is just personifying everything around him so he can't see it clearly everything embodies his emotions it's like so self-centered and ridiculous exactly oh wow uh, yeah i i guess that's that's kind of the way i took it and 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 that's the i guess another contrast is the second storyline is about like somebody like orbiting and being in your life but you can't really like take them in yet whereas our first storyline is you know uh perhaps on one hand wallowing and on one hand you know trying to get the job done until these two um, people 
clash together and then they separate again. So, you know, it's like a, how can one meaningful evening at a bar and then subsequent nap at a hotel really alter the change of your life in the way that you can comprehend and get over like maybe a larger issue that you're going on versus the second one is Bay working it out and cop 663 working it out while orbiting each other in some other way. So, yeah. Right. There's, I'm, sorry, I go just, ahead. I, I was just going to say there's, there's always that 0.01 centimeters of distance, right? You know, and that's just an expanding or, an, or a closing of that as these people come together and, and come apart. That that distance metaphor specifically works really well, right? Because it works in two different ways. It's like that there's always that slight distance and that longing that is created by that that closeness but farness um, between people and like between your ability to actually connect with somebody. But also the fact that like you could be so close to somebody and not notice because you're in your own head. Like this is this is a movie that's really like earnestly. Uh, asking you to consider that and like consider the people around you, I think. Um, and Jason, I really liked what you said about how he is like, he doesn't notice things at first and it takes him time, right? Like, I think that that uh, Cop 663's relationship to his impart- his apartment, it's it's symbolic of his continuing character arc, right? Where like, the, there's that great ironic line where he says he's starting to be more perceptive, but he still like, doesn't even notice that his entire apartment's been rearranged. I think that's, representative with like the the difficulty of shifting your perspective on who you are and what you want away from something that is really that you're really caught in that you're really stagnant in i mean you you contrast how dreamlike his experience of reality is and they even call him sleepwalking multiple times and Faye wonders aloud if if sleepwalking is contagious if she's given it to cop 663 because she seems to be sleepwalking at the beginning of the movie too um with how distinct and how um, sensual and um, present his flashbacks with his um, stewardess girlfriend are, where he's so present inside of that, that that's where he's living, right? Which is, it's funny, I said earlier that like, this is like a weirdly a cowboy bebop movie. That's kind of what I meant, right? Is that like Cop 663 is like literally living in the past um, and therefore like, barely extant in reality to the point where this woman can break into his home and his heart and start rearranging things. And he doesn't even notice, right? Like, and that's what she's doing, right? Like she's, she's trying to make a place for herself. Um, although her character arc is really interesting too, which I want to get into once I hear what Jenny has to say, because she doesn't actually want to be there with him. I think that she actually withdraws from him when he starts to notice her, which is also super interesting, right? Because that means that she has to give up on a certain idea of herself, um, which that's the other sort of like painful point that this, that the drama of this movie starts to make. So uh, I was thinking about what you were saying, uh, Harry, with uh, Cop 663 having like, he is living back in this memory. And I think it's really uh, interesting that it's chosen that we get to see his prior relationship in this like weird fetish with planes as well. Whereas in our first storyline, our our Cop 223, uh, we don't know anything about his ex-girlfriend. She's just like, she's already left him. So maybe like his memory, he's not living quite in that same space, but I guess this watch around, I was really trying to notice some of the, the Wong Kar Wai, like, um, you know, cinematic angles and and whatnot. So I I wrote down a few of the instances. So um, yes, that same like memory with the girlfriend and the plane and them having a great weird time there. That's like kind of like a foggy, um, you know, hue on the screen, but also all the camera angles are, 
like maybe uh, 45 degree angle, there's probably a technical term for this, but yeah, everything's like slightly ajar, right? And the other times that this happens is when our cop 223 is um, calling up everybody he knows from childhood to see if they want to like go out and drink with him. So he's also like living back in some kind of memory. And then it, it's also exhibited one more time um, that I noticed where when Faye is um, one singing the, the music in the background and, and also taking over this apartment. So she's, which is interesting because she's not living in any other memory unless she's like stepped into his. So I, I yeah, I was tr- trying to think about what that use of camera technique really means. And I guess I maybe have an inkling that Cody could further on this, but um, yeah, I, I, I was very curious about like the, the use of angled scenes versus then his trademark use of low frame rate scenes as well, because um, that I, I think they're really trying to evoke a kind of state of mind with that. Yeah, and, I, yeah, I, I would, say that that's probably correct sorry i didn't mean to cut you off jenny oh no go ahead uh i i this time around that sort of um uh, camera angle the the different frame rate it it did seem to me to be like a certain i don't know about romantic romantization but um i don't know like that it hit me really early on especially in the in the first half and then kind of fell away as i was drawn admittedly drawn to other things, especially the, we've kind of uh, uh, tiptoed around it a little bit, just the the, um, the presence of COP 663's flight attendant uh, ex-girlfriend and how, I guess, by nature of her being a, like, working on, like, on airplanes, this, uh, this motif of, like, not necessarily escapism, but, like, the need to get away, what's the next destination, how, like, in Cop 663's mind, that's, that's like, kind of his, um, the way he, like, kind of articulates his ideology and the way that Cop 223 articulates um, through, like, pineapple and expiration and, like, memories coming to an end. Um, like, Cop 663, especially by the end, and, and we see that sort of intersect with the route that Faye eventually takes near the end, this idea of, and, th- and this is kind of what I was referring to with this weird sort of, like, uh, like comforting at-home energy and also, like, yearning to, to go out elsewhere into the world, this idea that, like, Cop 663 has it in his head that, like, he, he's got to prepare for the next destination. He doesn't really know what that means other than, like, his ex-girlfriend was a flight attendant and he, and this is, like, the the big geographical point of this movie that really sung for me the fact that he lives so close like so adjacently to a moving sidewalk that his ex-girlfriend takes to work on an airline every day and he's always looking up at airplanes um he plays with that weird airplane sex toy thing like there there are all these physical presences of like of of airplanes and it's like i felt like i was watching casablanca or something um but at the same time i I guess on the other side we've talked about how Faye you know inserts herself into physically into into his home and this idea of um escapism as means of like rearranging his his in interiority his his internal life his soul um was this that was like one of the best uh i i guess like thematic um like symbiosis uh that was barely a sentence um i that's i guess what what more so i i latched onto and what really rose to the top for me this, again because i'm lonely and and living by myself and there's no escape for me but maybe there's escape indoors you know within myself maybe we're learning 
Um, yeah, I think you characterize that escapism really well. I'd just like to point out too that <clears throat> that is like the central conflict and problem of Fei Wong's character, right? Is that she keeps listening to uh, literally California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas. She wants to go to California. Um, and furthermore, she took this job on her cousin's behalf at the Midnight Express. The Midnight Express, again, it, it represents this sort of like central bound knowable location um, within the the chaos of the city surrounding them. Um, but it, it represents uh, like a need to find yourself, right? Like a need to be centered, literally to be centered geographically, sort of like um, existentially, um, spiritually. And she is trying to escape and find herself sort of at the same time, but she wants to find herself elsewhere. Um, Fei Wong's character, and it's pretty subtle, but she deals with a lot of self-loathing, right? Like she listens to loud music because she doesn't want to think. Um, she throws herself into this one-sided relationship, but when the man starts to wake up and notice her, she retreats from him in order to find this other uh, idealized self that she's created in her mind. Uh, a lot like he did at the first um instance and so you're you're right like like traveling and getting away they also represent this sort of existential trap for these characters right these idea of themselves as something that's always far away as something that they have to pursue but they can't attain and something that keeps them from seeing the things that are around them um and so i think that both of those characters are um are dealing with that in, in different ways. And, and the way that they deal with that is how they intersect and also the sort of um, drama of distance between both of them. I, I guess I want to chime in with an idea about being frozen in time as well. I listened to the um, commentary or most of the commentary that's um, with the Criterion channel. It's done by a um, film critic that is pretty uh, well-versed in Asian cinema at large, but um, one thing that our COP223 says earlier on is that I think it's something like, I think she, like referring to his ex-girlfriend, looks like Yamaguchi uh, Momo. I'm so glad you brought that, this up, yeah. <laughs> and then that he wishes that he could be like, uh, gosh, Tomokazu Mira. And so I looked up these people and um, so uh, Momo, the, the actress woman, she was like a pop star and then also in cinema and then had a really classic, like, I guess I'm thinking of it like Hollywood style where you're just in the same movie with the same people. So she got cast with the male lead, um, the Tomokazumura. And then at the age of 21, really young, she decides to marry her co-star and then quit her career. So in that she became like a frozen in time figure. So him comparing his ex-girlfriend to this figure that ceased to like move forward, like just encapsulated in like a, a a perfect image at the peak of her career. I I find really interesting. And it's the idea that like he, um, he doesn't, he doesn't see the future, right? Fei Wong sees a future, but she can't quite get there though in a different story, two, two, three doesn't even see a future future at all. He just sees the, the moment he's in and the longing previous, right? It's also worth noting that I think that's the literally the only thing we ever learn about May Cop 223's <clears throat> ex-girlfriend is that she wants he he wanted her or he thought she was like that and she wanted him to be more like that co-star. Um and so like that that just goes to show how important like 
like role playing and assuming a role is for both of those characters. Um, I wanted to ask Aaron about that and about how that fits into uh, the sort of themes we've been talking about. Cause Aaron, you're sort of our resident big fan of the first part of the story. Um, do you think <laughs> that that, that characterizes uh, Takashi Kaneshiro's character well, or what did you take away? And especially what do you take away from Bridget Lynn's character arc within that story? Because that's a, that's a really interesting part to me, especially the fact that like, uh, Takashi Kaneshiro maybe wanted to have a her have a place in his life. He doesn't get that right outside of this sort of like token that she gives him that he carries with him. Um, but she seems to find some sort of um, epiphany uh, either on her own or through her interaction with this guy that lets her move forward. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of interesting because I, I I do think that the first story. Um, which I, I do prefer, but it does feel very much like it is setting up the themes for the second story to kind of swoop in and and kind of take from there, right? Like it it feels very much like uh, the beginning of a story that, that kind of ends right when it's taking off, right? Like uh, you could totally imagine some sort of a, a sequel to the first story here. Um, not saying they should do it, right? But you, you can imagine that. Um, that kind of continues with uh, the characters of, of Cop Two Two Three and, and the woman with the blonde wig, um, but it, it the, at the same time, I do think that um, I don't know. It it feels it feels kind of it it kind of feels like it needs to leave off where it does, right? It needs to leave off with that feeling of longing, um, and, and kind of interestingly, I think that the second story does also end on a similar note and that it, it, it leads with not like a cliffhanger, but with the, the feeling of kind of endless opportunity in the future. Um, but it does that in a much more kind of uh, rewarding way where I think you see the end of this film and it feels like, even though you're not sure what's going to happen next, that is kind of the point that is kind of the feeling. Um, and that there's these two kinds of anticipation or uh, uh, kind of looking this way of looking into the future. Um, one is, which is, is rewarding. And one, one of which is like not rewarding. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling a lot, but th- do you kind of get where I'm, I'm going with that? It- yeah. It's, it's interesting, right? Because I think that, that all four characters uh, in both stories, they, they arrive at a, um, a state of growth and a state of um, sort of like uh, realization in that, but it, but it's interesting in that they're, they're sort of inverse or opposite where I think that both cop two, two, three, um, Takashi Kaneshiro's character and Bridget Lin's character, they kind of realize they don't need another person, right? Like Takashi Kaneshiro's character was so like bound by his relationship that he thought he couldn't exist without it. And he's so desperate to get it back. And then by the end of this, he, um, he only needs, being wished a happy birthday by the woman in blonde to understand how important love is to him, which is sort of his own self-determination of understanding that, that he can have the feelings that he has without needing to have a recipient to give them meaning. Meanwhile, Bridget Lynn's character is sort of like very subtly symbolically trapped within an exploitive um, work relationship, right? Where like, this isn't made explicit, but the, the foreigner, the white dude that, that she is sort of working for has this this weird relationship with another blonde woman, another uh, Asian woman in a blonde wig that he's fooling around with. And at the end of her um, arc, she kills that guy and is able to move on. And then they zoom in on that expiration date, right? And so like there's, there's kind of this sense that like she is able maybe somehow through 
through the sort of like like realization of who she is or uh, self-determinative steps to break free of this sort of like binding relationship. Meanwhile, Takashi Kaneshiro's character understands that he can move forward without it. Um, and then the inverse is that Faye Wong's character um, and Cop 663, um, Tony Lung's character, they sort of realize that they do want each other, right? Or they they can find definition only with each other. Um, like Faye Wong actually goes to California and finds out it's not what she wants. So she comes back to the Midnight Express. Meanwhile, uh, Cop 663 stops being a cop, first of all, so good on him, and uh, second actually buys the Midnight Express, which symbolically in my mind is like like buying into this idea that you have to like take ownership over your own self-centering and your own sort of like understanding of your environment and the people around you, right? Like like um, for better or worse, the Fei Wong's cousin, the former owner of Midnight Express, he like understands everybody, right? Like he is the town gossip to the point where he actually like impedes on other people's lives, but he sees them. Right. And like cop six, six, three stepping into that role is sort of like waking up from his, his dream and, and understanding that he's going to see people around him. And he even keeps the, uh, um, departure ticket that Fei Wong left for him ready, right. For her return. So symbolically he's saying like, I'm ready to accept you into my life. Meanwhile, Fei Wong returns because she thinks like, okay, like I've, I've seen through this, this dream that I had and I'm ready now to sort of accept that I can be with someone that I can be here instead of somewhere else. Whereas that used to be so painful for her that she couldn't consider it. She had to be somewhere else. Uh, yeah, I, both, um, both Tony Lung, uh, two ways character in this and, uh, Andy Lau's character in days of being wild kind of show the, uh, kind of the path to true happiness, right? Which is to stop being a cop. Um, it, That's uh, right. Turns out that 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 is all you need uh, in the end. Uh, is also, hey, real quick, uh, while we're while we're talking about Cop Two Two Three, the other the the one from the first story. Um, the, the, all, all respect to him. All respect to Wong Kar Wai. That is literally the worst jogging form I have ever seen in my life in a movie. It is. It is Get like number his one. Ass. Holy shit! Finally. It's, He's like wearing like full clothes and he's just like literally just like sprinting uh, for, for like about 25 seconds. And he's like, all right, I'm good. I've moved on. It's six o'clock in the morning. It's my 25th birthday. Just got a happy birthday text. Uh, I am. I'm over it, I guess. That dude, that dude is so good. I love that character so much. He's like the epitome of dudes who are down bad. Like just real, just a real yeah. fucking mess he's just eating everything he's talking to his his dog about how sad he is he's like calling every single woman he's ever met it, it is like what a, a comical what a great I, character I kind, of thought, I kind of thought this was going to be like a like much more of like a comedic like kind of romantic comedy thing just from like the the first part of this movie because he is portrayed like so comically it's it's kind of like uh like a uh like a romantic simp version of of what fly is from as tears go by like fly is like the violent uh like mobster version uh of what exactly. this guy is yeah, it's yeah. like the romantic like just just has nothing just has nothing going for him you know what i mean um, wow and, and that's really, such a good point wow Bro, it's 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 like brutal, and also like you know, if we're talking about like um, the nature of like changing technology and globalization, and and like how those themes come in, it's just this is like another movie that like really accentuates like how terrible stuff was before cell phones were uh, like adopted widely. Like the fact that he is is in a 
like the same restaurant for a month. And it's just like, just like, it's not even like a bar. It's just like a restaurant. Like they're serving like Coke and stuff. And he is just putting all of his money into uh, like buying Coca-Cola and then like sitting by the phone and like calling random girls. It is like shit was brutal back then, man. Like really brutal. Uh, just, just real quick. I also want to point out that like, I also think Takashi Kaneshiro's character is so funny in this and it, it's actually like, like weirdly very good and symbolic to me that he is because he's like, he's like a, um, self-deprecating deconstruction of Wong Kar Wai characters himself, where he, he's just like the most ridiculous, ludicrous exaggeration of, of Wong Kar Wai characters where like, like all, all characters are to one extent or another Takashi Kaneshiro's character in Chungking Express for Wong Kar Wai, except that that guy occupies like the most extreme end where it's just like, this is a dude who just like has monologues about love to himself and is completely obsessed with the idea to the point where he can't see or do anything else. And he's just a mess. And I think that's really funny. I, in, in my notes for the movie this time around, I wrote Takashi Kaneshiro, very funny. <laughs> so uh, that's also my takeaway. And uh, I, I love thinking about how, yeah, he gets to be the most like extreme version of like the, all the characters are kind of more or less doing the same thing, but he gets to be the more extreme and most comedic element of it. And Aaron, I think you'll really like what will be coming up in the Wong Kar Watch is Fallen Angels, which is extremely a companion piece to this movie in that both parts are of the vibe and of the kind of like dark noir-ish um, uh, bit of the first half. And Takashi Kaneshiro does the funniest shit I've ever seen in, <laughs> in all of his movies um, in Fallen Angels. So I'm very excited for that. But uh, one other yeah. question I wanted to pose here. Um, and it came up in the, the commentary I was listening to is, uh, I guess, like during the making of this movie, our boy Wong Kar Wai was um, reading a lot of Murakami. So there's a lot of comparison. Oh, my here. God. Yeah, I know. So apparently um, there, there's like some comparisons to be made of um, the Hard Boiled Wonderland, that book in particular. And I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, yeah, it, it's definitely the, the trope of like sad boy being sad, doing ridiculous things, thinking about a woman, um, very, very Murakami, that and like personifying objects. And uh, I don't think there's a cat in this movie, but I, I just kind of wanted to like quickly ask if anyone else got those kind of vibes out of it. Takashi Kaneshiro's character is just a Murakami protagonist. That's extremely apt. Jesus. I'm surprised that he didn't listen to Miles Davis while cooking pasta at some point during this movie. Uh, I don't think and, our boy can cook at all. <laughs> yeah, that's a good Harry, point. Harry, did you you catch the the? I, I'm surprised that the two things have not been referenced by Harry. I don't mean this is an insult, but one uh, uh, Tomokazu uh, Miura uh, one was in his motorbike or island. You have, I don't think did that was that brought up? Did I miss no, that? Uh, I I should have brought it up, but thank you. Okay, and then did or did not did Fei Wong do the the soundtrack to Final Fantasy? Or she did the main song for Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy VIII. VIII, Yeah, that's right. Yep, it's okay. wild. She actually went on to be like like one of the biggest cantopop stars of all time after this movie. Uh, I'm I am actually legitimately like not, not even like a joking manner. Legitimately curious about that because with each Wong Kar Wai film that we watch, there are more and more uh, generally kind of Hong Kong film stars. And as I am doing whatever little amount of research uh, I do, I, I do notice that like about 90% of them also have like an extremely lucrative, like, like musical career. And I am I wondering. A pop star. I don't get it. 
yeah, it's like everybody is a movie star and also a pop star, but also like the films that we watched so far, with the exception of, of uh, As Tears Go By, which was a, a pretty big hit, like these are maybe uh, critically acclaimed films and like maybe they're financially successful, like very generally, but they're not like massive films. So it is very weird to, to kind of click on a Wikipedia page for, for an actor in the film and also see like this person was like the fourth most successful musician in in like Hong Kong in the, the 20th century. And it's like, OK, I just this is obviously just missing cultural context that I just don't know anything about, uh, about how like, uh, you know, fame and like the music industry and the movie industry over there is done. But um, it is like kind of wild to see that, I guess. I mean, I, I kind of love that they're like apparently very obviously I wouldn't know a lot of these characters, a lot of these people, a lot of these humans, you know, contemporaneously, but um, I like that they are like recognizable characters, recognizable people in the sphere of, uh, you know, Hong Kong culture when they're casting. It really works for these movies in particular, right? It it makes them feel a little bit more sentimental, maybe a little bit, not pejoratively, but a little bit sappier, I guess, a little bit more like audience facing, if that makes any sense. I like that these are people who are already popular, already famous for reasons other than acting, being asked to also be like successful in creating a character and being part of that. It, it, it does seem like Wong Kar Wai is one of those directors that, that works closely with like a, a lot of very similar actors uh, across his films. Um, I think I, I always kind of appreciate that. Um, I, just just another real quick thing that I found really weird while while uh, kind of Googling around like Hong Kong films is like the the prominence of like parody films uh, is like so weird to me. Like every single film that we've uh, watched of Wong Kar Wai's has had like an accompanying parody film mm-hmm. or like the actors have like been in another famous film that then has a parody film. And often the parody films are like, are larger than the original films. And it's like, I, I that that's such like an interesting, I, like parody films were kind of popular in like the early two thousands here in the United States as well. Things like scary movie and whatnot. I'm just like, so I would love to read like an essay on like, what that is in that cultural context that would help kind of fit this puzzle piece in my mind. Cause it literally does not make any sense to me, um, which is just my own ignorance, but I would love to learn more about that. Uh, I don't have context about the period parody piece unless Harry does. Um, I, I guess I wanted to talk about other like Hong Kong context. Uh, yeah, just real quick. I would just say, and I'm super ignorant as to this as well, but I think that, uh, one thing we should maybe remember about Wong Kar Wai is that although his movies were not ever like super commercially successful the way you think they might be, I think he occupied a, a much larger, um, sort of like cultural, uh, mind space than, um, than the critical or the commercial success of his movies would imply. I think that Wong Kar Wai was like very, very well regarded within Hong Kong and within China, like more so than his commercial success. Like, I, I think that he was seen as like a big art, auteur. And I think that, that particularly his like aesthetic sensibilities w- were like really, um, beloved or really oft like, like, um, uh, parodied or like, um, imitated so that might explain both the like prevalence of um canto pop success and the parody right is just the idea that like there was sort of like this really exciting indie ish auteur happening and everybody was super interested in it because it was like this is happening here like as opposed to like 
in the West or somewhere else. Right. And, um, I think that that also like, I think that Wong Kar Wai had a lot of like Western success, particularly with Chungking Express, even contemporaneously, um, which can also help explain it. Right. Is that there was just an explosion of popularity around him and a lot of people wanted to capitalize that. It's sort of like Bruce Lee exploitation, right? Um, there's sort of like a Wong Kar Wai exploitation, um, current, but, uh, Jenny, go ahead. Yeah, I guess to follow up on that, I'm I'm curious to watch some of Wong Kar Wai's later films because I'm I'm pretty sure he abandoned some of his uh, most notable techniques that were developed, you know, up through this movie and and for the next couple at least as well. That he felt like he was being copied too much is what I read. That he just like everybody's doing Wong Kar Wai now, you know. So is he, like it's kind of funny to like notice that other people are doing what you're doing and then also feel so full of yourself, but. Uh, what I also want to remark on was that this is Fei Wong's first major film, at least maybe first film ever. And she was like, uh, not really quite, or I think she was already an established canto pop star, but hasn't completely um, busted the ceiling. And then this is also Bridget Lin's final film, technically, because um, she's also in The Ashes of Time, the, the next movie, but this one was filmed thereafter. Um, I, I'm just like so impressed that Wong Kar Wai was able to like write and put the, together this movie with the star-studded cast in between editing a, a different movie just because he had time and he wanted to flex some more of his like own creative freedom in that. And I, I think it's like really beautiful, right, that we get um, a still frame scene when we're moving from one story to the next. So we get a still frame of Bridget Lynn's character as she's, you know, kind of going off and moving on with her life and freeing herself. And then we get the still frame of when Cop 223 bumps into Faye and it starts her new story. It's like actually like a christening of a new star, which is uh, Holy just shit. really poetic. Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful. And um, uh, also, uh, as, as a student of architecture and urban planning, I just have to remark on the Chunking Manors, which is, um, you know, one half of the namesake of this movie, which is a huge series of apartment complexes that have, you know, mixed use. So there's a lot of um, like commercial economy and trade economy happening. And then it's where a lot of people live and it's a lot, it's like a famous place for a hostel. So, uh, or for people to um, backpackers to stay cheaply in Hong Kong. So it's like an icon of that. And <laughs> some people um, uh, just, it, it, yeah, I guess, like, I don't think he could, Wong Kar Wai actually got to film there because they didn't want to be associated with, like, drug activity that's occurring in the movie. Um, but I, I do think it's a really important time and place to, like, insert that building in, in into this. And then um, also I wanted to shout out to the Central Mid-Levels Escalator, which is, like, a 10-block long escalator stairway that um, it, it goes from the Central to Mid-Level District of Hong Kong to encourage people to walk to work so that they would have less traffic. And that's just so beautiful to me. All right. That's my closing statement. No, please. Thank you. I didn't bring this stuff up because I am too ignorant, but I believe that the Chungking apartment complex was in the former Kowloon, right? And in 1994, was Kowloon still an unincorporated city or like a, um, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I, they still call it the Kowloon district, but yes. So we're, t- we're on two different spheres in these stories. The, the Chungking mansions being in Kowloon versus the rest of it occurring on like Hong Kong Island in the central district. Right. And like Kowloon is a really important symbolic place, right? Because it's a walled city and it's literally like cut off from the rest of like culture and uh, 
like government and even sort of maybe time in this in this movie sense. It's definitely like a severing of like class and culture for sure, right? It's it's interesting that we have such a prominent like South Asian presence in the first part of the film. Um, and also in this commentary, it's mentioned that Wong Kar Wai just like had a really good friend who was maybe Indian or something growing up. And so thus he forged new relationships with the South Asian community to like get actors in this movie. I don't know, like a, a really weird fact, but yeah, it's, um, it, it's a totally like, uh, a separate world and economy and like exchange of ideas that is really fascinating to me. And it's, it's severed from authority too, right? Which is that makes the, the lostness of this movie's characters and of the, the environment that is expressed really interesting, right? Because like, there's, there's this sense that they're living in an anarchic space and like, that is almost literal in Kowloon at least, right? Because Kowloon was at a, at a time, like literally abandoned by the mainland Chinese government. Lots to think about. Uh, that finishes what I was going to say about this movie. Did anybody else have any final thoughts? Um, I know I know we're over time. Um, I would love to talk about Fei Wong rearranging the apartment because that's such a nuanced and kind of like heartbreaking, although it's it's only very subtly heartbreaking uh, part of this movie. But what did, you, what did you all think of that? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Aaron. I was going to say, is there any way we could tie this into another discussion of apartments? I think these things. I believe so. Well yeah. Tandem. If we uh, want to go yeah. into your bit, let's do it. Well, again, it's, it's not a bit. I mean, you know, Cody's noties is, is a bit of a bit, but but what I do here is strict objective scientific analysis, uh, math based, uh, essentially. Um, wow. Uh, no, Cody, it's not. No, Cody, it's not an insult. I'm just saying that the, these this is an objective measurement as opposed to a more subjective kind of artful understanding of films. Uh, hmm. uh, and what I'm referring to here is, of course, the Aaron Grossman Wong Kar Wai Film Department Quality Index. Um, again, this is a a measure uh, by which we we judge the quality of the apartments in Wong Kar Wai's films. Uh, in, in, based on kind of the films that we've we've taken a look at so far as tears go by, uh, Waz Apartment, we determined was a 2 out of 10. Uh, Days of Being Wild, Yeti's Apartment, we determined was a 6 out of 10. Um, question here, because I, I think especially with Chungking Express, if we're going to look at this film and look at the apartments, I think that the main apartment we do have to consider is Cop 663's apartment, right? Which is the one that is kind of um, you know, kind of uh, redecorated or kind of cleaned up by Faye. I think we can all agree that that is the main apartment in this film, correct? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. So th- there's, you know, there's a bunch of kind of uh, measures that we have to use here. First of all, there's a great scene of it being cleaned up. Uh, I think that there's an argument that, that that means it probably wasn't very clean. It was cut, probably a pretty depressing place beforehand. That might knock it down. The scene's very good. That might knock it up. It does flood in the middle of the film. Not a good thing to happen to an apartment. It also, uh, you know, Cop 663 is a grown man. He's a grown-ass man with stuffed animals. I don't know whether that's bringing it down or up. Does anybody have any parts that they would like to interject here before we get to uh, kind of an objective analysis? To, to be fair, in my apartment, I I possess at least one stuffed animal, but that's because somebody gifted me a nice Paddington bear for Christmas one year. I don't know if you have any comments to make about that, Aaron. But uh, yeah, do you want any like gender normative uh, criticism that you want to level at us real quick, Aaron? While you're talking about it, just go I, ahead and like be really, really regressive for us. I will say that uh, one of these stuffed animals is a gigantic Garfield, and I do find that quite funny. Uh, so I am willing to not knock it down too harshly. Uh, 
for for that, I guess. It just I the, quite a bit of space is taken up in his apartment uh, with these uh, uh, stuffed animals. Uh, the problem is not necessarily a grown man having stuffed animals, but the stuffed animals are representative of his personal uh, kind of grief and inability to move on. Um, so that does unfortunately knock it knock it down. Oh yeah, that that is actually true. Good point. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the Garfield, though, very good. So I'm giving it a point for that. Any any other points? I mean, the the Garfield was introduced by Faye Wong, though it didn't belong to him. That's true, but he does he does have it. I think at the end of the movie, he doesn't throw it out or anything, right? So presumably, gonna say that's a point in his favor. Look, here here's what I would give it. I'm gonna give this a five. You know, I don't think it's as nice of a place as Yuddy's uh, apartment. Uh, it's less horrifying stuff is done there. So, you know, that, that is a, a point in its favor. However, it does flood kind of a terror. I don't know if anybody's had any flooding in their apartment. It's kind of the worst thing you can have happen. Uh, yeah. I, you know, but I think by the end of the film, it's in a better spot, but going to give it a five just about in the middle, uh, between the, the one and the 10 there. That, feel, that feels right. Uh, I guess I like the idea of, I mean, it's not an objective criteria, but I like the idea of a place that can be new every time you come around to it and you feel as if it's the same and you barely notice the differences. I like that concept of being refreshed every once in a while, but that's not an element of the space. That's an element of his attention to it. Well, I I do think that kind of weighs in there. Uh, I think we, I think we may have mentioned it earlier. Maybe this is pre-recording, but the apartment uh, was cinematographer, Christopher Doyle's apartment uh, at the time of filming, uh, which is kind of a, a cool little, uh, detail. I also think that uh, I've referenced it before, but the book At Full Speed, which takes a look at kind of Hong, Hong Kong cinema in depth with a kind of curated list of essays about Hong Kong cinema, uh, that does mention a, a bunch of points about kind of the use of apartments in uh, Wong Kar Wai's films, uh, mainly that, that Wong Kar Wai's kind of um, uh, takes quite a look at uh, the, the theme of like fleeting human encounters associated with urban spaces and how like an apartment is kind of uh, uh, often a reprieve, but often not from like kind of the bustle of everyday life. Um, uh, one of the, one of the essays in the book specifically says that uh, the apartment for Wong Kar Wai is not a place of residence, but a place of transience. Um, very often do we see people actually living a life in apartments. Uh, mostly it's, it's kind of the space between the life that they are living. Um, so that kind of, kind of adds to it as well. I just have a quick uh, question, Aaron. If, the the rating of the apartment changes pre post Fay intervention, or is it pretty much the same? She does gussy it up a little bit. I would say it's a four. I would say it's a four beforehand, and then probably a six afterwards. Uh, I Even don't know. though she I, replaces the cans uh, labels so that he's eating sardines in pineapple cans, and vice versa. Yeah, uh, you know that that I think having that kind of food confusion can be kind of a disorienting thing for for yeah, anybody to go through. Sardines and pineapples—it's just a different brand of sardines. Yeah, it's it's oh, a different, really? different. Is it a different kind of fish? I believe. Yeah, it's a different meat. Yeah, it's a different different similar. Yeah, I don't know, Harry. Harry, what do you have to say? Because you really love that that cleaning apartment uh, uh, scene um, there. I just I really like. I liked your reference to Amelie. I think it's it's really similar in that like like Amelie is a character with like really deep seated self loathing and, and anguish inside of her, right? That that the story is kind of about her like working on. And similarly, like I just I find it really like like sad and heartbreaking and um poignant that Fei Wong is like she's making this apartment 
to help uh, 663 and sort of like wake him up a little bit, shake him up. But she doesn't want to like insert herself into it, right? Like she's very pointedly avoiding um, like actually being with him. Um, even as she sort of tries to wake him up, like it's such a um, tentative, uh, halting sort of like ineffective um, means of pursuing this relationship. And it, it like, it like demonstrates how painful like actually connecting with somebody can be and how she wants to, she wants to um, change herself and change other people without actually like risking the mortifying ideal or mortifying ordeal of being known. Right. Um, And like, that was very um, captivating to me and very nuanced, right? Like this, this difference between like what we want from romance and what we don't want romance to do to us. And especially the fact that, when um the cop actually finally asks her out she jilts him and goes to california instead to sort of continue to pursue this solitary ideal so that she can avoid having to think essentially um and the way that she's so freaked out by whenever he um catches her in the act um all of that was just very like like I, very perfectly captured by the theme and mood of this movie, I think. And that's so impressive to me because it's such a nuanced and um, like multifaceted idea, right? This idea of like, like wanting something and longing for something, but also not wanting it to like hurt you and um, wanting to affect without being affected or wanting to be affected in only on your own terms and only in, in ways that you can control and slowly instead of, you know what I mean? It's, it's just like, that was such a, she's such an interesting and tender character that I'm, I'm so interested in. It's, it's, it is, it does the very interesting thing of kind of representing two kind of competing things at once, right? Where the the first is like representing uh, kind of the, the fear that the people often have uh, with like building relationships with other people uh, and also representing how, building relationships with people often works where you kind of don't know that you are uh, friends with people or friends yeah, with people yeah. until they suddenly are. Really right? good point. Right. Exactly. That's totally what it is. It's like, he didn't even realize Faye was that important to him until she was literally changing his life. Yeah. She, he, he didn't realize that she was helping to clean up kind of his, his, his mess that he had from his earlier life until like at the end, until he, he finally realized it at once. It's, you know, uh, uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a beautiful uh, collection of scenes. Great contrast too. All hey, right. what's up? What's up with the fact that when he orders a uh, a chef salad, they give it to him in tin foil? I also thought about that. Is it a wrap, like a wrapped chef salad? I think I think it's literally salad that's wrapped in tin foil, which is fucked up. But economical. I, I, I guess. guess it, I guess it is economical. Mm-hmm. You could, yeah. It would taste like metal. It would taste like tin. A lot of good and? food. A lot of good food. The scene in the hotel with the food where he's just eating fries. I was like, I want that so badly. The, the, I want the pork and rice so bad. That's the best food. Yeah, food. yeah that street food looked pork really good. But also, like, there is a there is a specific meal embodied by Takashi Kaneshiro, who's just, like, in an apartment at, like, 4.30 in the morning, eating just, like, the biggest, sloppiest burger while watching old movies, and it's just, like, that liminal space and the, the liminal meal within that space is, like, ooh, that's the good stuff, and that's that's the kind of meal that you don't get to have anymore because of quarantine. I, I also don't get to have it drunk after going to bars anymore. Right, exactly. Is, yeah, yeah. Brutal. When God stops watching, right? 
and he hasn't stopped watching since March. That's exactly right. Uh, all right. Well, Harry, if you want to help me ring in our last segment of the show. Yeah, nothing could please me more, Jason. And what then, is that segment? Then to welcome... <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties! Noties! Wow. Thank you, as always, for the the warm the warm welcome, the nice introduction. Um, before getting into the noties proper, uh, something I remembered in the past couple minutes and quick pulled up an article for is uh, something that feels obligatory to mention. Uh, Wong Kar Wai has written a sequel to Chungking Express. Uh, I haven't seen or I haven't come across any updates on this since September when it was initially reported, but he uh, he wrote a script and it was approved by the government so it is free to move forward in production whenever that happens uh, he has some other projects on his plate so who knows when that'll happen but the the filing for uh chunking express 2020 includes the following uh plot synopsis um in 90s hong kong the broken-hearted policeman 223 encounters a blonde female assassin and they spend a short time together overnight policeman 663 who also is getting over heartbreak sees his life gradually changed by the intrusion uh, intrusions of the person of his dreams. And that's in quotes. In 2036, young uh, Zhao Chan and Mei are unwilling to be held back by genetic partnering and insist on finding their own destiny. And destiny is in quotes. Um, so that is something uh, to look out for. Um, figure what? Excuse me. Cody, Cody. What the fuck? Does, do your noties have any... Uh, what the fuck? <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's a, a a what the fuck button that I will just push right now, Jason. I will leave it to you to to transfer over the proper uh, dot uh, wav file. Uh, boop. What the fuck? Thank you, thank you, thank yep. you. Perfect. Um, so w- with that out of the way, uh, again, you know, Twitter would get our asses if we didn't uh, at least mention that. Um, moving more formally into the actual noties, uh, it feels like. Only uh, only yesterday that Jenny was on the uh, was on the pod for our last iteration of Trilibs, which, uh, if you're unfamiliar, is our attempt at uh, emulating the the fun, family friendly Mad Libs game where stories are filled in by vo- you know vocabulary parts and and functions of speech, uh, and that's what we try to do here. We'll be doing that today um, for something. Uh, I'll just go ahead and call Trilib. Uh, Trilib's Love in a City. Um, this is uh, modeled after the movie that we uh, watched and have been talking about, Chungking Express. What I'm going to do here is just uh, do a call and response to everybody here. Um, I'll put out, uh, you know, like I said, part of speech, a word, anything like that, and we'll fill in the story. Uh, it'll be good fun, probably. Maybe family uh, family friendly, but don't hold your breath. We'll, we'll put a, an, a, I think our podcast already has the explicit tag on it, uh, wherever podcasts are sold. Um, I put everybody's names into a, a, a random order organizer prior to recording. The order that got spat out was Jenny, Harry, Aaron, and then Jason. So unless there are any gripes with that, we can go ahead and uh, get started. No grapes. That's good. Um, Jenny, what uh, what I'm going to need from you is uh, is a name. Uh, first name, last name, first and last name, whatever you're feeling. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to go with Haruki Mirakami. Haruki Mirakami? Okay, perfect. Yeah. I'm unfamiliar with these people that you've been uh, mentioning, but uh, yeah, that's good stuff it's a books reference cody oh but yeah i'm as unfamiliar with books as i am with video games um but that's excellent thank you uh next from harry i'm gonna need a region canto 
we're going to go with Murakami some more. Perfect. That could be a literature reference or a video game reference. Yeah. I'm, 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 uh, yeah, I'm, I'm picking up on this a little bit more here. Uh, Aaron, from you, can I please get a noun? Uh, gun. Sweet. Uh, Fuck yeah, bro. That's <laughs> uh, a gun. Welcome to Guncast. Uh, Jason, from you, could I please get an adjective? Live. Ooh. Nice. Uh, Jenny, back to you. Um, could I please get uh, something sold in a store? A Garfield teddy bear? Fuck yeah. Nice. Garfield teddy kitty. Um, Harry, uh, I did put in teddy bear for what it's worth. Uh, copyright trial of podcast. Harry, from you, could I please get a time? Uh, let's see. Uh, 11.59 p.m. Very good, very good. Um, back to Aaron. Uh, Aaron, from you, could I please get uh, a, a question? A question you might ask somebody. Hey, what are you doing here? Said in that voice. Uh, okay, I will... Yep, I'm yep. mentally adding in that, uh, that intonation of voice. Um, Jason, from you, could I please get... Uh, a name, whether that's first name, last name, or first name and last name. Dominic. Hell yes, dude. <laughs> uh, very, very good. Dominic. Welcome to the show, Dominic. Um, Jenny, uh, an adjective, please. Mm, delightful. I'd say so. Dominic uh, Delightful. Oh, if only private eye. Um, Harry, <laughs> uh, from you, could I please get um, a uh, a food order? Something you might order from a food place. Uh, spaghetti. Spaghetti. Um, Aaron, an occupation, please. You know, like a, a job or a career. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm a human resource. Paralegal. Uh, Jason, a number, please. Hmm. Any specific digits? Uh, nope. Whatever you're feeling. Six, six, nine. <laughs> six, six, nine. Uh, boop, 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 boop. Where are we? Uh, Jenny, could I get a first name from you? Oh. Uh, Naushika. <laughs> Ah, uh, boop, 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 boop. I make noises when I'm scanning the dock. Uh, Harry, from you, could I please get um, a way that you might say goodbye to somebody? You know, like a, a farewell salutation. Sayonara. Sayonara. Sayonara, Dominic Delightful. <laughs> wow, uh, you predicted it. Um, Aaron, a verb, please. Uh, shoot. Um, I'm not going to read, just, just letting everybody know, I'm not going to read anything into the answers Aaron's given so far. No, I'm just, uh, I'm just, I am providing. No, I just want to let you know that I'm not reading anything into it. Yeah. Just, uh, yes, Aaron, I, Aaron, could I, Aaron, could I get a first name? Uh, bazooka. Um, <laughs> as in bazooka, Gale. comma, Joe, right. Yeah. Uh, 
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jason, a song, please. Ooh, uh, geez. I, okay. It's on my mind. Um, what a fool believes. Wow. That song's on your mind. You don't say. Hmm. If I, if I, if I ran a midnight express, that's the song that would be on all the time. It's a good choice. Uh, Jenny from you. Could I please get a, uh, a type of toy? A bazooka Joe. A bazooka. Is it that a bubble gum? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a, it's a GI Joe that has a bazooka. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Resident war correspondent, Harry Mack. (laughs) That's right. Thank you. Um, Harry from you. Could I please get a type of room? Uh, with a view. Ooh. Damn. I got got. Uh, we're coming to the end ish, I promise. Um, I realize that would have sounded more convincing if I didn't put the ish at the end. Um, but in any case, uh, convincing ish. Yeah, convincing ish. Uh, Aaron ish. From you, could I please get a cartoon character? Uh, G.I. Joe. Again, not <laughs> Jesus <really>. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, from, well, he's a cartoon. I don't understand. That's hey, you're you're true. You're not wrong. Uh, Technically you're true. true. Uh, Jason, an exclamation, if you please. Zooks. Nice. Uh, Jenny, a phrase consisting three or fewer words. Uh, let me check my notes. Maybe I got something written down. That's too many words, but I'll let you think on it. Uh. Can of pineapple. <sighs> All right. And we are at our final entry. Harry, uh, from you, could I please get the name of a movie? Dragon Inn. Very timely. Uh, very nice. Follow Harry on Letterboxd, by the way. Um, perfect. Okay. So uh, we've got everything filled in. Uh, if we don't, I will adapt as we go. But I, there, there are a lot. There are a lot of blanks here. I think we've got everything pretty well squared away. So without further ado, um, <clears throat> I will proceed to read uh, Trilibs: Love in a City. Haruki Murakami sits at the counter of Kanto Gun, which is a live shop nestled in the corner of town. It specializes in Garfield teddy bears. It's eleven fifty-nine p.m., almost closing time. As Haruki Murakami begins to lock up, they hear a voice from behind them. Hey, what are you doing here? It was Dominic, a frequent customer. On top of being delightful, Dominic was known for being a smooth operator. During their visits, Dominic always picked up the same order. Spaghetti. Haruki Murakami knew little else about Dominic, other than uh, they had worked as a paralegal for the past 669 years. (laughs) There were were rumors uh, that Dominic had also broken up with their partner, a flight attendant named Naushika. But Haruki Murakami didn't pay any attention to that. Or at least, they pretended not to. Haruki Murakami handed over the spaghetti, and Dominic flashed a small grin. Sayonara, Dominic said. They shot away into the distance. Haruki Murakami signed and, uh, sighed, rather, uh, I can't read my own Calibri font, and blasted What a Fool Believes from the stereo while they finished closing up. Fuck yeah! Yeah, I want to be there. Uh, Haruki Murakami made their way home, all the while imagining what it would feel like to have Dominic slowly move a bazooka joe down their bare back. Haruki Murakami arrived home and found their front door unlocked. They stepped inside. Their room with a view was flooded, and their G.I. Joe plushie was dirty. Haruki Murakami went around a corner and exclaimed, Zooks! It was Dominic. Can of pineapple, Dominic said. 
They both smiled at one another. It wasn't long before they were both on Haruki Murakami's couch, watching Dragon Inn, wondering what their next destination would be. The end. Wow. Ooh, I can't believe you just spoiled the plot to Happy Together. <laughs> oh, no. No. Hey. We're going to have to change the calendar and everything. I was going to say that that actually did sound quite a bit like a Haruki Murakami short story, except that I don't think he's capable of writing um, homosexuality that accurately or Ooh. well. Come here for your Murakami hot takes, everybody. We've got loads of them. Oh, speaking of hot takes, real quick before we wrap up, uh, was that the end of Cody's notice? Excuse me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're done. Thank you for your contributions. Woo, yeah. thank Excellent you. job, Cody. Thank you. Uh, just my own sort of segment, um, which I, I guess I, I'm becoming known for, um, which is fuck Robert Ebert, Ro- Robert, Roger Ebert. He doesn't deserve his, his real name. Uh, he gave this movie, that's right. Uh, he gave this movie a three out of four and said that it was more about movies than it was about life. And, uh, he's an idiot. So Jeez. come at me, fuck. ghost of Roger Ebert. Uh, did you, uh, hey, uh, liked this movie, but the biggest fucking own towards Wong Kar Wai in this movie, uh, was, uh, Janet Maslin, uh, Janet Maslin of the New York Times. Uh, this is the quote from Wikipedia. Janet Maslin of the New York Times criticized the film's MTV-like aggressive energy. And I find that to be the fucking funniest thing I've ever read. I don't know. I was just like, oh, fucking I just can't keep up with these young people. Yeah, that's extremely New York Times. Well then, I think that uh, concludes our episode about Chunking Express 1994 by Wong Kar Wai. You can watch this in a lot of different places. Insert here the places you can watch it. Uh, I mean, most importantly, you can buy it from the Trilon, so maybe do that. Maybe when does this episode release? If it's showing at the Trilon. Yeah, if it's showing at the Trilon when this episode comes out, um, be responsible uh, and adhere to all rules about um going into public and visiting public spaces but uh i don't know if it's still going to be part of their plan yeah you'll have five days you'll have five days to watch it when this one comes out this comes mm-hmm. out on the 20 on the 26th right so then, then go to trilon.org and get a ticket to all of these movies there uh my name is jason daphnis but i want to uh toss back to jenny one last time get tell us where you where people can find you jenny and where you want to be found etc uh, you can find me, and I guess I maybe want to be found on Twitter at Ackerson Jenny. And uh, I guess my letterbox, I've been reviewing a little bit more this year as part of the maybe things I wanted to do movie-wise this year. Uh, Jenny Ackerson on Letterboxd? I don't know. But thank you so much for having me back. Love to talk about Wong Kar Wai with all you pod fellows. It won't be very long before that happens again, I'm sure. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find our podcast at Trilove Podcast, and you can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema, uh, and you can find me at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Express. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Uh, I've been Harry. Thanks again, Jenny. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm at Chitaki Harry. And I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. With you people, it's always out with the old, in with the new. You realize what goes into making a can of pineapple? The fruit is grown, harvested, sliced, and you just throw it away. How do you think the pineapple feels? Stopped into a church, I passed along.